All right, we are in the uh, week two of our study in the book of Colossians. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, open up to the book of Colossians. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, one way to access the scriptures is through a YouVersion app. There's a Bible app uh, YouVersion has produced. It's very good. Um, But but we would always encourage you just to get a hard copy of the scriptures. It's good to have uh, just the, the copy of the Bible that you can just hold in your hand. You can make notes in it. You can write things down. So Colossians is in the New Testament. We're week two. We started this last week. If you missed last week, uh, we opened up this letter. The Apostle Paul is writing to this young church in a place called Colossae. Now, Paul had never been there or met these people in person, but he was getting an incredible report uh, about this young church from a man named Epaphras. Uh, Epaphras was from Colossae, and he sat under the preaching of Paul, uh, most likely in Ephesus, and then he went back back to his hometown. He shared the gospel to them. And then now he's been sharing the good things that have been happening in Colossae in this really unique kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural city, agricultural city. Uh, And and Paul is hearing just amazing things. He says in the section that we were last week, he said, I'm I'm just hearing about uh, the love that you have for one another that's given to you by the Spirit. But Paul, in this letter, is also going to start addressing this heresy or this false teaching, uh, this false teaching that's been creeping into the church that said, look, it's good that you have Jesus. It's good that you've heard about Jesus. But if you want the fullness, you're going to see that word a lot. If you want the fullness of what it is to know God and to be changed and to live the life that you want to live, you are going to need to add to your knowledge of God just different philosophies or different ways of thinking or different ideas. And what Paul is teaching foundationally and fundamentally in this letter to this church and to our church is that faith in Jesus alone is sufficient to change your identity. And out of that changed identity, it transforms the way that you live. And you're going to see it really in technicolor in our section this morning that you don't have to go anywhere else for what you need Jesus is sufficient. Um, it, it's kind of like this. My, my son, my youngest, he turned nine this week, and uh, he's been watching me watch the NBA playoffs a little bit. And so he asked for a basketball. And so for his birthday, I got him a basketball. My wife's like, why'd you get him a basketball? You might not be able to tell just by looking at us, but our Tino men are not engineered for basketball necessarily. Um, and so he starts kind of dribbling around the house. And my wife was like, hey, do you think we could ask Kendrick? Kendrick was on the video this morning. He's on our staff here. He used to play basketball overseas. Uh, She's like, do you think we could pay Kendrick to come over and teach our son how to dribble? And I was like, we don't need to go outside of the house for that. I am his father. I can teach him everything he needs to know about basketball and dribbling. Now, this illustration does break down a little bit because Kendrick would be super helpful (laughs) in uh, teaching my son basketball. But the point is that the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus super abounds for everything that we need in life. And in this section this morning, uh, we're gonna see how Paul, in a very poetic and profound way, 
shows us and the Colossian church how Jesus is supreme over all things and how he is all things to us. The interesting thing about Jesus is that um, not everyone believes the same thing about him, but in spite of that, Jesus is really quite popular in our society. He shows up in art and music, film, fashion, and politics. All kinds of different people want to be at least associated with Jesus. And so that brings up the question for us, and it's the question that the Colossian church is kind of wrestling with. Well, who exactly is he? Because there's so many thoughts and so many ideas swirling around Jesus, that he's a great teacher or a prophet or a humanitarian, or uh, you might just think, well, he's just a really remarkable man. But there has to be more to it. There has to be more to it. And, and if, there, if there is more to him than just those things, well, then what do we, what do, we do with him? I mean, do, is, there, is it okay to just treat Jesus as a historical figure and we're gonna pull some good ideas and concepts from what he said and how he lived his life? Is he a role model who just sets a good example for us so that we can have our best life? Why does it matter to us who Jesus is? And the Colossians, again, are wrestling with this very same question, especially under the influence of culture that says, no, you can have Jesus, but you also need to import all these other ideas and philosophies and thoughts if you want to have fullness in this life. So Paul in this section, he's going to be turning our eyes and turning their eyes upward. And through this beautiful poem that he writes here in this section, he's going to just take us to the grand reality of the supremacy of Christ. So that's where we're going in our brief time together this morning. Let me pray um, because we just really need God to be able to show us uh, who he is this morning. So if you would, just, just pray with me. Father... We love you, God. I love you so much, and I just thank you for this moment and this time that you give us together. And God, I just want to start right now by just confessing that in my flesh, in my own power, in my own physical ability, I could never do what we need so desperately in these next few moments. I can never do on my own what we desperately need in this time together. And so we need your spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you, would you come? God, I'm just asking that you would give each and every one of us, regardless of where we are in our walk with you, our relationship with you, God, just an awareness of your presence, an awareness of your power. Holy Spirit, would you show us Jesus? Would you illuminate for us just the brilliance of who he is? Would you allow us to see past all of our idols and all of our fears and all of our doubts and all of our questions and all of our skepticism and all of just the things that clutter our mind and clutter our vision? God, would you just cut through all that and allow us to see Jesus? And Jesus, would you show us the Father? God, I'm so thankful for this passage of Scripture I'm so thankful that it's true, and I'm thankful for what it means for us. God, would you apply it to our hearts, God, that it would indeed transform the way that we live our lives. Jesus, this is always and only for you, and it's in your name we pray, amen. So we're going to be in chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 15. Now, Paul's already instructed him last week. This is what he talked about. He said, if you want the strength to endure patiently in this life, if you want a life of joy and thanksgiving, 
Even in your suffering, if you want a faith that calls forth love and good deeds, it's all located in the person of Jesus. And then Paul expands that source for them, and he just bursts into this poem that starts in verse 15. Listen what he says here. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That word image there is the word is icon. He's the representation of God, the very, the very nature and character of God is revealed in Jesus. He says, in Jesus, the invisible is made and has become visible. We went we just went through the book of John where we experienced this. So John uh, is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, uh, and he has loads of Jesus' own testimony about himself. So it's great when you read that, you're like, who better to understand who Jesus is than from Jesus himself? And John, what he tells us, he, he's, he's breaking down for us, do you want to know what God is like? If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Do you want to know how God would treat the poor and the broken? Do you want to know how God feels about sinners? Do you want to know what God does when you've made a mess of your life, how he feels about you, how he moves towards you? If you want to know what the maker of all things thinks and what he does and what he's like, look at the person of Jesus. Paul would also write to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter one, the sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus is not simply a prophet, although he does say prophetic things. He's not simply a teacher, although there's so much to learn from him. What the scripture says, what Paul is presenting to us in the Bible is that he is a picture of God because he is God. There's a second title that Paul gives him, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn over all creation. And this has been a title that some people have kind of stumbled over. What exactly is Paul saying there? Paul's not saying that Jesus is the first one born in all of creation because Jesus is not a created being. That's a heresy that arose in the early church, but Jesus is not a created being. There has never been a time when Jesus wasn't, that he didn't exist. Sometimes when we pull words apart, we actually get further away from what the words mean. So if I asked you, well, what is a driveway? Well, you would look at that and be like, well, that must be the place where you drive. Nope, that's the place where you park. Well, then what's a parkway? That's the place that you drive, you see? So sometimes when we pull words apart, we get further away. If you look biblically at the term firstborn, it doesn't mean the first one born. It means the preeminent one. 
Jesus is the preeminent one. It means the one who inherits all that the father has. And that title of firstborn was not always given to the first child born. When John shows us Jesus as begotten by his father, the religious leaders don't come together to try to kill Jesus. They don't want to kill Jesus because he claimed that he came from God, but that he was God. He was the same stuff of God. He is of the same substance of God. Not similar, but the same. And what the Bible is presenting to you is that all that God is, Jesus is. And Paul's showing us in that passage, look at verse 16. It says this, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus is the firstborn preeminent over all creation because he made all of it. There is not a created thing that Jesus did not create. That's what Paul just said. Jesus is the creator of all things. And he ends with this really profound statement. He says, all things were created through him and ultimately for him. Okay. This means that you and I were made by Jesus. We were made for Jesus. He is the creator of all things and he is the end goal of all things. Therefore, as his people, all of our lives are all for him. So that's not just like a catchy phrase, a motto that we came up with because we're so clever. We look at the scripture and this is what the scripture teaches, that all things are by him. All things are through him. All things are for him. And he is the, he is the end goal of all of our lives. My um, daughters, I've got two daughters, uh, 12 and just turned 11, and they like to create uh, playlists on Apple Music on, on my phone so that when we're writing together, they can play their, their playlist, they can listen to their playlist, and, and it's great. But the songs that they pick are selected by them for them. It's very clear. They've not considered me when they've made these playlists. They are by them, for them. And Paul just said, all things are for Jesus. We are his playlist. We are created and selected for his pleasure and delight and his purpose and his sovereign and perfect plan and his fame and his renown. All things are made by him for him. Look at verse 17. It says this, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. What Paul is teaching here is that you and I are held together at a molecular level because Jesus wills it to be so. He's the creator and sustainer and the end goal of everything. You don't just say that about a prophet. You don't just say that about a teacher or a good man or your co-pilot or your homeboy. Jesus is the preeminent one and there is no one like him. A lot of times you'll hear people who don't believe in God or at least don't believe in God in this way, they'll kind of trip over the fact that there is order in the universe. And I realize that there is 
chaos. I'm not saying there isn't chaos in the world, but there's just certain laws that are just always true in the universe. Water always boils at the same temperature. It'll boil at the same temperature today that it will tomorrow and that it did yesterday. Wood always burns at the same temperature. A child will always have to pee at the most inopportune time. There are laws in the universe that are just true. And we rely on all these laws to do things like fly planes and launch satellites and build buildings and just kind of walk around on planet Earth. There are physical laws that govern existence because there is a lawgiver who made it all. God does not come from creation. He reigns over it and holds it together with physical laws that allow for his creation to function. And he holds us together also with moral laws, which, which is why violating people's rights and destroying one another is a global problem. It's why we say that people have dignity and value no matter where they are from and no matter who is in charge. There are these moral laws that hold us together. Okay, so why is Paul laying all this out in, in this poem? Because we have to deal with the power and the authority of Jesus. If you're gonna deal with Jesus, you have to deal with his power and with his authority. And Jesus challenges us. The true Jesus, the Jesus of the scripture, he challenges us. He's not just a moral teacher or philosopher with some good thoughts or ideas to add to our lives. He is God. He is Lord over all. And that challenges us because we want to be Lord over all. Some of my favorite relationships in my life uh, are with my friends who don't know Jesus. So no offense to my Christian friends, I love you too, but I just have a lot of fun, um, especially when we start to get in these conversations where they just really start to push back on, on Jesus. Uh, my wife is actually really phenomenal in these environments. She does really well in these relationships. In fact, uh, this was a couple Thanksgivings ago. Our neighbors had us over, uh, and they don't, they don't follow Jesus. Um, and our family's all kind of on the East Coast, and their family was out of town. So we said, okay, well, we'll just do like a Thanksgiving for like strays. And so we kind of got together, and we sat, uh, and they asked me to pray because I'm the pastor, and apparently I'm the only one who has access to God. So I was like, okay, great, I will pray. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, like I said, amen. And literally the next phrase to hit the table was my wife saying, so what do you think about Jesus? And I was like, there, we don't even have gravy on the mashed potatoes right now. And you're kind of diving into that. But that is always going to come up because in our lives, Jesus is the center of our lives and you can't be around us without him coming up. And what we have learned in our relationship, especially in our relationship with others, with people who don't know Jesus, we have to earn the right to share Jesus with people. And that comes from time with them. It comes from sacrificial love. It comes from listening first and a convicted civility. Here's what I mean by that. Meaning we can maintain the distinctiveness of our faith and beliefs about Jesus without being divisive. Differences, disagreeing, that is inevitable. Disunity, division, that's a choice. Uh, in fact, on 
Easter night just a couple weeks ago, um, Lauren and I had some friends over who are of a different belief system, and through a convicted yet civil and loving conversation, we shared with them how the scripture gives us a picture of Jesus that we believe is dramatically different than the picture of Jesus that they hold to. And we showed them how and what we believe about Jesus and what they do differs. We had this long conversation across the dinner table with them. And guess what? We are still friends. It's possible. When Jesus presents himself, he presents himself as a rock. It's an interesting picture. And he says that I am either the rock that you build everything else on. He calls himself the cornerstone. He's like, I'm either that rock in your life or I'm the rock that you stumble over, the rock that you trip over. Jesus is the rock that you build your whole life on or he's the rock that you trip over. Now, I want you to catch the point here. Jesus can be someone that people stumble on, but we shouldn't be. Disagreement with civility is not only possible, but it should be the way that we show up in these relationships. So don't be a person who starts division and disagreements out of pride and arrogance and chalk it up to like, well, they're just tripping on Jesus. No, people are tripping because you are tripping. They're tripping over you, not Jesus. It's possible to disagree about fundamental, essential, universally important issues and still love people. Jesus teaches us that. He models that. We can be civil and not compromise our allegiance to Jesus. Okay, moving on. When we see Jesus for how Paul is describing him here, that's how we can see how Paul can says, when when he's talking about you can patiently endure in suffering, uh, you can have a strength in Jesus in our suffering. We can be a people of joy and thanksgiving when it, things, it feels like everything flying apart. What Paul is describing here is how we know that's true. Because Paul is saying, listen, you can stand saying, I know that Jesus made me and he holds my world and he holds my life together even when everything looks like it's flying apart. I've shared the story multiple times, but on the night when my first daughter was born, uh, you know, when, she, when she was born, she didn't quite kind of scream. You know, there's that classic kind of like baby scream uh, when, when they come out. This was our first child, so we just, we're just so thrilled that an actual human was there. That was great. So um, they don't always look like humans, but like, like a lizard, but it was still kind of like, so it was great, but the nurse knew that something was wrong, and so they, they took her, um, and you know, they took her away for a little while, and so they're tending to my wife, and then the nurse comes back in the room, and uh, she said, it doesn't look good for your baby, and uh, we don't know what that means. They didn't have a NICU at this particular hospital, and so they really couldn't even tell. She just wasn't getting... She just wasn't be able to breathe the way that she needed to be able to breathe. Um, 
And so that night, as you can imagine, was just like a really brutal night for my wife and I. So they take my daughter and they put her in one of those kind of like oxygen tent things and she's got hoses and everything else kind of come around. And you're looking at, you know, your, your first child, this little newborn uh, who's hooked to oxygen and under the tent and like just like making all kinds of noises that don't sound good at all. And you're not getting a ton of kind of clear answers. And so that was a night that I was just completely rattled. And uh, I know this is not the thing that you're supposed to do, especially if you're, if you're supposed to be like a pastor guy who knows the words of God and you know, has this great faith and all this stuff. But I just went back to our room and I just took the Bible and literally flopped it open like that. I'm not saying this is like a method for you to use all the time. This is just kind of what happened in my story. And the passage that it opened up to in the Bible is Isaiah 44, 2, which says this. And I'm praying and I'm just like, God, have mercy, heal. I trust you, but I'm really scared and I don't even know what in the world, you know, and I'm not getting clear answers. I don't know what's gonna happen here all the stuff that you can just kind of imagine. I open it up and that goes to Isaiah 44 too, which says this. Thus says the Lord who made you and who formed you in the womb and will help you. Fear not. I was like, okay, God, I'm pretty dense, but I get that. Um, my daughter is fine the next day. They just did some more things and got cleared up and she's, she's great. She's a healthy little girl today. I have to include that part because I've told that story before with not saying that and people were like, holy smokes, what happened to your little girl? You never finished the story. The, the point is, when I know that everything has been made by Jesus and for Jesus and he is holding it all together. I made you. I formed you. I will help you. I can trust him, even when things look like they're falling apart. The very nature of God, this creator God, who in the very beginning of this book we see, takes chaos, and he calls it into order and brings forth the cosmos. And what Paul is saying, not only does he call that chaos together and bring it into order and bring forth the cosmos, not only does he do that, now he's holding it together. And he's still taking the chaos of our lives and he's bringing it under his loving and gracious order in the lives of his people. And in every part of my life, I do not have to live as if I'm holding it all together. Because Jesus rules over all of it and I can calm down and I can obey the Bible and cast my anxiety on him because he's Lord over it all and I know that he cares for me. Look at verse 18. It says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying here, Jesus is the head over all creation and the head over his body, the church. He's talking about a very intimate relationship that Jesus has with his people. I I wrestled in high school and my uh, high school coach would always say, pay attention to the head because wherever 
the head goes, that's where the body is going. So whether you're attacking or whether you're defending, pay attention to where the head goes because if your body ever moves in a way that's separated from the head, you have a serious problem on your hands. And, and what Paul is saying here, the head is uniquely and intimately attached to your body. Jesus has a relationship over everything, yes, and he's uniquely and intimately connected with his body, the church, his people. He is almighty and intimate. That's what's available in Jesus. Psalm 62, 11 says, one thing God has spoken, two things I've heard, power belongs to you, God. You have all the power, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. This superabundance of God himself, there's all power and all love. God is all-powerful and all good. There is authority over everything and intimacy with me. The head of all creation is the head of his church. He's the firstborn from among the dead, the preeminent one of this new community. Look at verse 19 and 20, as we just about done here. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Paul's saying the fullness of God is not outside of Jesus. It's all in Jesus. Verse 20 says this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Christ who rules the cosmos has reconciled you and me who believe through the blood of his cross. Paul is saying the giver of life, the creator, gave his life to give us life in him. Because there was this massive dislocation between the creator and his creation because of our sin and our rebellion. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke faith with God, everything broke. And the world is filled with sin and sickness and we are exiled from God forever apart from God. And when God saw that sickness permeate us all, he pursued us. Jesus stepped in and entered into our sickness and said, I will not let my creation die apart from me. I made it and I will go and reconcile it. We're gonna end now and I wanna have the band come up and close us. I want to end with, there's this illustration. So I, I heard a pastor use this once, and I just thought it was so great, and I know I've talked about this before in here, but um, in the movie uh, uh, Taken, it, 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 it's so good. And if you haven't seen Taken, and I ruined the movie for you here in a moment, I'm really sorry, but it came out in like 2008, so you had time to go see it. Um, so this movie Taken, it's the story of a father, uh, Liam Neeson, and uh, he's the creator of his beautiful daughter. And she lies to him because she wants a life that is apart from his rules and his law and his reign. And she wants an experience without his permission because she feels like her father is holding her back. And so she goes to Europe with some really rough people and she makes some compromising decisions and she ends up going further than she means to go and she gets into a darkness that she never meant to be in and she ends up being in this really terrifying place 
of death and destruction. And so what does her father do? Does he just look at that and he's like, well, you know what? You make your choices and you just get what life throws at you. That's it. No. When he sees his child go astray, because he is a dad with a particular set of skills, (laughs) he crosses oceans and he steps into the darkness and he wages war against evil and he breaks chains and he sets her free. Her maker is her savior and he will go through anything to bring her back. That's the poem that Paul is preaching here in Colossians chapter one. The creator God saw us rebel against him when he had set for us the perfect environment, relationship, everything we needed for flourishing, everything we needed for love and peace and joy and life with him. We rebelled against him and so he, our creator God, humbled himself and he descended in the form of a man. God puts on flesh and he saw our weakness and so he took on our weakness. He saw our toil and our trying and our pain and our suffering and he walked through the very same pain and the very same suffering. The the curse of the garden was that thorns and thistles were going to be brought forth. And those very same thorns and thistles, he wore on his head in a crown of shame and dishonor. Adam and Eve violated God's law at a tree and Jesus Christ was nailed to a tree in public shame and humiliation. And where we had torn away from God, his flesh was torn from bone so that we might be put back together with him. The the very nails that went through his hands and his feet were made from the metal and the minerals that he himself put into the mountains that he called forth. His body, the scripture says, was parched and baked under the sun that came out of his mouth. The nervous system in his human body that he designed, it was all his idea. He's the architect of our nervous system. Fired across his body, shocking him with pain and blood and loss and exhaustion and suffocation. He submitted himself to that. And when he let out his cry of victory, that it was finished, he conquered once and for all what was rightfully our death penalty. The creator of all became a sacrifice for all to reconcile all, to make friends again, to 
to rescue back all who were lost. I mean, have you ever heard anything so incredible? What does God want from you? Faith in him. What do you get? Friendship with God. This is why Paul writes poetry. Because when something so beautiful and so brilliant captures your heart, you sing about it. It would be a good exercise this week for us, church, to just take a time and just start right now. What is it that amazes me about Jesus? And see if you don't come up with a poem like Paul did. Who is Jesus? He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of, the, of all things. He's the savior of his people. He is beautiful and brilliant and amazing in every single way. He is everything to us, our maker, our hero, our reason for being. That's who he is. And that's what we celebrate at communion. On your chair, around you, there's two elements. And these two elements, they represent the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus. And I just want to just share just the last two verses in this section as a means of what we are celebrating when we, when we take. And I'm going to read these verses. And then if you are a follower of Jesus, I just invite you to eat and to drink in celebration of who our God is and in remembrance of this reality. And Paul says in Colossians 1, listen to this before you eat and drink and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Because once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy holy, completely unique other than in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. If that is who you are, if you've put your faith in Jesus. So I want to invite you to eat and to drink and then we stand and we sing together. Let's do that now. <laughs>